to maintain my survival is by reminding myself who I am. One of my recent projects is doing a family tree. If I ever feel lost in spaces, I can remind myself that this space doesn't define who I am. Sustainability to me is messaging. Choosing certain people to communicate certain messages is a similar way of saying, these are the people that we respect. These are the people whose opinions matter in this conversation. So if you look at it that way, you could say, well, it's not enough to have black models. What about having black creative directors who are shaping the vision for this brand? The last two years has taught us anything. It surely has to be that we can plan to a degree, right? We can say, these are my intentions for this year. This is my plan. You can meditate, pray over it, whatever you do. But there's always a degree of this is out of my control. And then you kind of react to things as they happen. And, and I think I did a lot of that. Samata Pattinson. Samata is a British born Ghanaian fashion entrepreneur who is probably best known for one, being a sustainability advocate, and two, being the CEO of an organization called the Red Carpet Green Dress, where they essentially work with the Oscars to bring sustainably made fashion to the red carpet. On top of that, she works on a number of different things. She's a published author, she's a public speaker, and she's a writer. Speaking of her today, I really got a sense behind her passion for sustainability and it's no surprise that she's in the position that she's in now and that she occupies the spaces that she does. She doesn't just talk it, she actively lives it. Outside of fashion and sustainability, we spoke about The Tribe, which is a global collective that she founded for women in order to empower women. And we also spoke about diversity and why it's important across every industry. And I love the way that she framed why diversity is important, particularly when it comes to sustainability, which has made me personally look at it in a way that I've never really looked at it before. So let me not ramble on. Without further ado, this is 1000 Voices and here we have Samata Pattinson. So let's um, just start off with, can we just take it back and maybe just talk to me about your upbringing? Yes, definitely. So I'm a British-born Ghanaian. So both of my parents are from Ghana. My dad is from the north. He's from Tamale. And my mum's from South Ghana. So she's from Accra. And so both of my parents came over to England to further their education. My dad came for his PhD in Cambridge, which is where I ended up being born. So I've always been brought up with this kind of just kind of cross-cultural experience of being a, pair, a child of two Ghanaians who love their culture, who love the country they come from and who made it their mission to make sure that when we were in Cambridge, we were surrounded by a kind of West African community. There was, I don't know how they did it, but they found Ghanaians back in, you know, the kind of late 80s, you know, to make sure that they could have that around them. And But I went to a school in Cambridge. I actually went to an all-girls school for my kind of secondary education. And, you know, I was normally one of, few black people in that school there weren't that many so I just always had this hybrid existence of an amazing culture in Ghana and we go to Ghana every summer holiday or Christmas and I would always just think oh my gosh I have all of this culture that I I come from um amazing aunts amazing uncles amazing grandparents you know just rich culture and they want to download that in you as soon as they can and then I kind of was growing up in Cambridge and I was around, you know, it's an esteemed place for academia. So I was around really intelligent people. Um, lots of my friends' parents were like the doctor who did the first like five organ transplant or whatever it is. So 
just had a really interesting surrounding um, and I feel really lucky for that because it's definitely given me a really interesting perspective on life and a good sense of identity. Great, perfect. After your, oh, let's talk about your educational journey so far. Actually. So you've grown up mm-hmm. in Cambridge, you're entrenched, I suppose, a little bit in the West African or Ghanaian community. What happened after that? So what was your educational journey like? Did you always, I know we know you're working in fashion now, did you always know you wanted to work in fashion? Did you study fashion? <laughs> no, it's really funny. So um, I didn't always know, it's actually not really funny, but um, I didn't actually, I didn't know that I wanted to, that I would end up in fashion. I just always had a strong creative side. So I always used to write poetry or do drawings, sketches. I had sketchbooks. I wrote um, sh- uh, kind of spoken word, things like that. So there was always this creative vein that was running through me. But then I actually always did have a genuine interest in 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 the other side of academia. Like I learned my my kind of A levels were biology, chemistry, maths, and physics, and then I did an AS in Japanese. And when I went to university, I studied economics, finance, and management. So even though I always had this pull towards this creative side. I always understood the need to understand the world in a different way, like from that more, and I don't want to say it, it's definitely not a more intellectual form. Art is one of the highest forms of intellect, if you ask me, but from that other side of it, that kind of um, traditional academia. So it was always just trying to figure out how do I balance this, this desire I have to understand the way the world works. I am interested in macro and microeconomics, I find biology and physics fascinating, Um, but at the same time, I want to be able to express things in creative form. And I think when you grow up in a household where your parents have come to another country to A, further their education, give you opportunities they feel will set you up in life, you do have an element of guilt if you don't seem to be taking that route seriously, or if you don't kind of, so you do maybe feel a bit limited in the choices of subjects you can study. And it's this kind of common joke that, you know, we'll kind of choose from economics, law, medicine, you know, which one is it going to be? So I went with economics. <laughs> but being in London, I basically decided that if I'm in London, which is a fashion capital, I can use being in London as the opportunity to connect with fashion. Um, and that's what I did. So I was studying, but then I went to kind of boutiques and in um, Covent Garden and in different places. I did my spoken word. I wrote it. I I did some spoken word stuff like at the Tate Modern. So I just tried to use my opportunity of being in a location to create opportunities to express these other things while I was kind of getting my degree. Um, And I will say that my degree was a three year course. And I would say the first year and a half was complete hell for me because I really didn't want to be doing it. And I mean, I didn't go to all my lectures, you know, my first year grades were not great. It was only maybe halfway through the second year that I kind of had this moment of thinking, even if this isn't what I tend to do, intend to do, understanding this is never going to be to my detriment. I'm never going to be in a room where understanding this particular fundamental of business or this particular macroeconomic theory is going to kind of harm me. So then I just thought, just kind of get through it um, and just try and get what you can from it and some point in your life it will become useful and and that's pretty much how I got through my degree that's how I that's how I managed to finish it (laughs) great 
So you've studied economics at university yes. yeah. and now you're working in fashion. <laughs> what was the transition? How did that happen? Yeah, so it's funny because the fashion industry is a business. And so whatever industry you work in, I think if you can recognise that it's a business and in the sense that people sell and buy services. I mean, if you're a designer, you sell and buy products. If you're a musician, you sell and buy records. You know, there's this transactional part of whatever creative industry you're in. And that's all about economics. Anyone who's looking like um, a department store that's looking to buy your collection is going to look at it from a creative stance as well. Sorry, but also from an economic stance of how much is this going to cost us? What is our profit markup markup on this? How are we going to um, be, you know, how will we gain something from this? So however you approach it, it's always got a business view on it. And so for me, when I finished my degree, I basically um, used to just surround myself with designers and I kind of did my own thing. I was part of a boutique in Kings Road where I was helping them with their PR and marketing watching how designers approach that boutique, watching what they looked for when they would accept designers and when they would reject designers. So that when I ultimately decided, you know what, I want to express myself with my own kind of fashion label, which was small, I had a really good understanding of what to do. So it was so organic. It was so finished degree working in a fashion boutique, um, being head of PR, seeing the designers coming in, understanding the process they go through to make their collections. Hang on a second, maybe I could do this. I want to make clothes for women. I want to make clothes that celebrate this culture of kind of Ghanaian culture where the female form is, you know, curvaceous and there isn't kind of this pressure to have this specific aesthetic, like beauty is in all shapes and sizes. How can I do that? So it was so organic. It wasn't strategic. I didn't have like a life plan. I was like, yeah, I'm on track. You know, it was very, everything was just a happening that was just, I guess, being open and being open to finding out things as I went along, but in my heart knowing there's an expression that needs to come out and trusting that the right people would come around me. You know, I think if this last two years has taught us anything, it surely has to be that we can plan to a degree, right? We can say, these are my intentions for this year. This is my plan. You can meditate, pray over it, whatever you do. But there's always a degree of this is out of my control. Um, and then you kind of react to things as they happen. And and I think I did a lot of that. You know, I planned, but I also reacted to things as they happened. That's interesting. You made a couple of really interesting points there. You know, when you speak about um, the economics or the business and that within the fashion, I guess that's a side of things that people may not always consider or appreciate mm. so I mentioned to you earlier but I've, I come from a fashion background myself but I was studying um, fashion business right. and business and I mean I, I love the creatives I you know I can really appreciate it I wouldn't say I'm the most creative person myself <laughs> so, but I can appreciate it and yeah you're definitely going to need to understand the business side of things in order to go into something like that it isn't all just designed as it's a massive industry one of the biggest industries in the whole world and there's mm-hmm. so many different facets to it whether it's someone on the business side of things, whether it's on operations, whether it's on the design, the PR, like you said, you worked in, it's so mm-hmm. multifaceted in so many ways in which you yeah. can get involved in it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. You, no, you just said something that I just wanted to say. Um, 
you said, oh, I mean, I'm not creative, whatever. And I, I honestly think every person is creative. I think every being on this planet is creative. And I think the way we express that creation and um, creativity differs. Like people might see themselves just kind of not creative and very like logical thinkers. But the, for me, creation is being creative is how you put things together. It's how you put your meals together. It's how you cook. It's how you put your outfit together it's how you put your words together it's how you order things in your own unique way right and so you know have you ever seen you speak to some people and they explain a concept to you that maybe you couldn't understand before like you tried to understand it yourself and you couldn't understand it but then this person speaks and they explain it to you and the way they've ordered those words and the way they've delivered that information to you, you just get it. And you don't just get it. You feel so moved by it. I think that's a form of creativity as well. So even though you said you're not creative, I challenge that because I think you probably are creative. You definitely are. You just you just express it in a way that maybe is different to other people. <laughs> maybe not creative in a, tra well, I was going to say in a traditional sense yeah. um you can say then because when you think creativity you think of um you know designers and yes. colors and like you know big things like that you don't think about being like the examples you gave being creative like you put things together creative with your words creative with your meals etc i suppose they are all different forms of creativity so right now so you're working well to fast forward a bit i know you're at the red carpet green dress what was the transition so you've surrounded yourself with designers you're in the fashion world how did you get from there to where you are now to see your the red carpet green dress? Yeah, so that's that's interesting. So um, a few a while ago, I so I had my label and um, I wrote this book while I was starting it up, like student, um, and I wanted to use it as a kind of di a diary slash manual, getting all the stuff I was learning about starting a brand up and putting it together. Um, because I always thought, oh, people always wait till kind of they're really later on in their life to say, to write these things down. But because I was in it at the time, I wanted to write something about what I was experiencing when it was happening, when it was real. So I wrote the Fashion Designers Resource Book, which was published through Bloomsbury. And around that time, I kind of started my label. I was kind of chipping away at it and I just found it so exhausting. I was, you know, going all over London, South Hall, all these different areas to get fabrics. It was just the hustle, the hustle of it was just immense. And I remember just feeling so tired and something happened where I basically had um, a fire and I lost all of my things in this fire. Actually I lost 80 to 90% of my things in a fire. And I thought if that is not a sign that you shouldn't be doing this, what is? Because the collection that I had basically put blood, sweat and tears into had also gone up in flames literally so I decided to stop and for for a period of time of around eight months I just didn't even look at fashion I wasn't working in fashion I just was like this is not meant to be for me I was really de devastated about it as well but at the end of that year I my mum gave me a sketchbook for Christmas and she just you know gave it to me as part of one of my gifts and I just opened it up and I drew one sketch of a gown it was the first gown I'd sketched for around in about a year and I closed it and then a few days later, I went online and I went on to vogue.co.uk, which I don't really tend to do. Like I, I don't really, uh, on Christmas holidays, I'm kind of off. But I went on and I saw they were advertising a competition and it said, can you design a dress for the red carpet with a sustainable twist? And I'd never heard of the word, I'd never heard the word sustainable, let alone, I'd heard the word sustainable, but I'd never heard it paired with fashion. And in my head, it had a very specific meaning 
when I heard sustainable, I thought eco, I thought kind of earthy, but I thought, well, I can design a dress for the red carpet. And I kind of focused on the part of the sentence that I understood. So I sketched, I opened my sketchbook and that sketch I'd drawn, I submitted that. But the main thing I said is, you know, I'll make it with um, organic, sustainable material. I'll dye it with, you know, um, I'll dye it in a sustainable way. So I was learning as I was going along. But that sketch, that one sketch, that sketch won red carpet green dress. And so a week later, and I'll say I submitted my sketch at 11.58 p.m. So the, the deadline was t midnight. Wow. Um, <laughs> midnight. Exactly. And this is why I truly believe that you have to listen to like the nudges or these kind of quiet things that I was kind of thinking, oh, I can't be bothered because there was an entry fee. And I was like, I've never had to pay an entry fee before. Why should I pay an entry fee for a competition? This is ridiculous. But the entry fee was because it was fundraising for a charity. So it was a really clever way to do it. So I was umming and ahhing about it. And then I just was like, submit 11.58. And four or five days later, maybe a week later, Susie Amos Cameron calls me. Now, Susie Amos Cameron is the wife of James Cameron, who is the director of Avatar, Titanic, The Abyss, Terminator. So these are a huge Hollywood couple. And it was her contest. And the reason that she started it was because she was going to the Oscars with her husband when Avatar was nominated. And... She didn't want to just wear Christian Dior or um, Gucci or whatever. She didn't want to just wear a dress that she didn't have a story to tell about when it came to sustainability. Now, we know fashion has impact. Fashion impacts the environment and impacts people. It impacts our waters. It impacts our air. It impacts our soil, our land. It pollutes. It wastes. It devastates. It also affects people because they're being exploited with how they're making clothing, how they're being paid, how they're being treated, how they are being expected to pull these raw materials uh, for nothing, damaging the earth. You know, when people think of fashion, they don't remember that everything we wear comes from farms, it comes from fields, it comes from forests. And if it's synthetic, i.e. petroleum, it still impacts our land. So it has huge impact. And so she was trying to educate people about this in a way that was kind of exciting and engaging with red carpet green dress, challenging designers to make a sustainable gown for the red carpet. And so when I won that and I was brought over to Los Angeles, that was the beginning of my journey. And that was when I started to realize and see that there's this side of the fashion industry that I didn't even know existed, that is full of people, companies and organizations that wish to create things in a way that's better for people and better for planet. And suddenly I thought, this is the bit for me because this is the bit that's been missing. This is the bit that felt a bit empty. You know, working in fashion, you can feel like, oh, this industry can feel a bit empty. Um, and that to me was the filling. So I, I kind of came on board as campaign director and we work with the Academy Awards, but we do so much more than that. And yeah, so it's grown and I've worked with them for a few years and, and I'm now the CEO, but I came on board as a contest winner. Perfect. When you speak about sustainable fashion there, it's really mm -hmm. interesting. So when I was working in fashion before, my mm -hmm. concepts of sustainable fashion was just, well, it's simpler concepts where it was always, you know, if it was made maybe with organic cotton and it wasn't made in a sweatshop factory somewhere, then I thought, okay, that's mm -hmm. sustainable. But it's only when I started to learn a bit more about the industry, I've sort of found out, how impactful how how negatively impactful um the fashion industry can be or is as a whole when you talk about toxins and pollutants and 
wastage, massive wastage. So I have no idea. I feel like the average person probably just doesn't doesn't know, to be honest. All of they that, don't. yeah, which isn't great. With that in mind, is there a set definition of sustainable fashion? Sustainability? How do you define it? What is sustainability? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think sustain, and I say this often, but I think sustainability is is a series of questions and answers. I don't think it's a single sentence because depending on where you stand and what your perspective is, it's completely different. I mean, for somebody, sustainability could be about um, the creation of things that are of a high quality that last long that will be with you for a lifetime. Um, but for the person that cannot afford that, then that can't be their definition because they can't partake in that. Um, for some people, sustainability is about plant-based or um, not using animal products or things like that. Um, but then for somebody else who doesn't see that as the only solution to a sustainable lifestyle, that doesn't speak to them. So I think it's a series of questions. Um, the analogy I always use is I liken it to a pebble and a ripple and you know if you think about the product or the experience you're making you start with a pebble which is that which is like you know looking at what it's made from um how are you making it are you making it to last is it um does it have an emotional durability where people want it forever how is it being dyed how is it being treated like you focus on analyzing that thing you're making from that product perspective but it has to ripple out it it can't just end there it has to look at the people involved in that process are they being well paid? Are they under age? Are they being exploited? Do they have job security? Do they feel that they can advocate for their rights in their workplace? Is there representation in their workplace? Are they only being used um, for those kind of for certain roles and not being given the opportunity to progress into other roles? And so it just keeps like rippling out. And then you can go bro broader and you start thinking, it's messaging as well. Sustainability to me is messaging. It's choosing certain people to communicate certain messages is a similar way of saying these are the people that we respect. These are the people whose opinions matter in this conversation. So if you look at it that way, you could say, well, it's not enough to have uh, black models. What about having black creative directors who are shaping the vision for this brand? It's not enough to say... Um, 80% of the women on our kind of retail floor, sorry, 80% of our staff on our retail floor are women. Okay, of those women, how many are given the opportunity to progress to kind of leadership roles? Um, it's, you know, it's it's kind of, you start analyzing this stuff and thinking, are we including the disabled community in our ambassadors? So I don't believe there's one single definition. I feel that whoever you're speaking to, should be able to define it to you in a way that makes sense to them, how they live, how they can exist. But having said that, there are definitely kind of core things that it should touch on, like human rights or certifications, a proof that what you're saying it is, it really is, you know, packaging, transparency, um, waste, impact on biodiversity, materials being used, water, climate chemicals so you can get really specific with it but I think on an overview it's a conversation and it has to be fluid because we can never all agree on one single definition yeah okay so does that flow into or from what listen to what you're saying it sounds as if yeah. a lot of the issue from what I understand anyway as well a lot of the issues to do with our consumption patterns right now 
with um, mm. this sort of fast fashion culture that we live in at the moment. Don't quote me, I, well, I believe, or I might be, might be a little <laughs> bit off, but I believe that I think over the last 15 years, our fashion consumption has gone up, I think 60% over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. Which is which is obviously a lot, you know. And so, do we do we need Same. that? Do we need that many things? Do we need that many new things all the time? Exactly. And it's like unchecked sort of what do you what do you even call it? Unchecked capitalism in a way. Even it's like fast it's fashion, like, quick, 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 more yeah. and more. Then it's more wastage, more exploitation in order to meet our own demands, which can lead, you know, to a lot of this exploitation. Can you talk about? The concept of slow fashion, maybe explain mm. that and if that will, if that would fall under the umbrella of sustainability. Yeah. So you just, what you just said, you nailed it. And the thing that I think people tend to forget is everything you've said, plus the fact that we're not wearing this stuff for as long. So not only is everything you said right about us buying more and quick, 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 but coupled with that, we're not wearing it for as long. So we're utilizing our clothes less. And we're throwing them away quicker. So we get it, we get loads really quickly, we wear it less, and then we throw it away quickly. So that just makes it worse. So the consumption side is a big part of it. Um, and so that's why slow fashion as a concept is this idea. Because to contextualize this, we are literally living off one and a half Earths right now. So the capacity at which we're consuming things means that we're living off the equivalent of 1.5 Earths, we're overutilizing what doesn't even really exist. So it's not even that we're running out, it's that we're kind of in a debit, um, we're in a debit situation, we don't have any credit left. And so we, what scientists say is that we're living in the age of the Anthropocene, which is a man-driven era of unprecedented change. We don't even know how our consumption is going to affect our life, our life around us. But the thing that we have to also call out before we say about fa- slow fashion is it's not just about our consumption, it's about production. Because by focusing on consumption, what the business world or what the um create the 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 manufacturing side of things is doing, it's like shifting the blame and it's making people feel like you're shopping in a way that's crazy, you need to slow down, this is on you. But it's not recognizing that we're producing in a way that's unsustainable. We're taking um, non-renewable resources that we haven't designed any solutions in for disposable at the end of the life cycle of that product. So a big thing that's happening in sustainable fashion right now is a conversation about end of life responsibility. So should companies, when they're making things, have a responsibility to design them in a way that when you and I are finished with them, they can be disposed of in a way that is sustainable. They can biodegrade, they can compost that maybe the companies have a take back policy where we'll take back your old jeans, we'll take back your old t-shirts. So I just want to make that point because one of the dangers of focusing on um, consumption is that it shifts the responsibility fully onto citizens. And this responsibility isn't only ours, it's companies who are producing in a way that's unsustainable and, and they don't have a regard for that. And slow fashion is kind of saying, can we slow everything down? Can we, can we not buy, not only can we not buy so many things, but can we buy things that we can use multiple times in multiple ways? Like this... Um, this piece that I'm wearing here, this is, I wear this as a top, I wear this as a dress. I wear this, um, I, I dress it up with heels, I dress it down with, tuck it in the top bit and wear it with jeans and trainers. So slow fashion is saying, not only can we just buy less and can we slow down the production because it's just all too quick. Can we go from 52 collect, I mean, some shops are putting in 
new collections like every week. You go to some shops and you're like, this wasn't here last week. That's mad. So can we slow the number of collections down? Can we can we slow down the pressure of the marketing? Um, but also can we can we show people how to make the things they have last and be pieces that they can see themselves wearing the whole year, you know? Um, so slow fashion is about a concept, it's a mindset. It's a decision that I won't be driven by messaging that tells me I need something new all the time. And and if I may, I think that slow fashion is about a connection with self-esteem because when you have this feeling of I define my own my own um, self-esteem, I don't need something else to make me feel worthy, or I don't need more stuff to make me feel like I I'm suddenly work like in. It is linked to that. Because a lot of the time people will say to me, oh, I just go shopping when I feel low and I buy a bunch of stuff and I get I get like a dopamine. I feel good in that moment. So slow fashion is saying, can we find other ways to make you feel good that don't involve you spending money for something you're only going to wear twice and then throw away? You know, so it's deep. And, and I love it for that reason. Great. All right. So we've got, obviously, obviously, you know, fashion and fashion sustainability is an area that you're passionate about you've been working in it for a while now yeah and when i was um, looking into your profile as well i could see that there's a strong theme on women empowerment as well or female empowerment mm-hmm. so where you're working now for example red carpet green dress is an all-female mm-hmm. firm you founded the tribe the empowerment journal and you've done some advocacy work as well for women for women international this is what i've seen as well uh, i don't know if there's anything i'm missing but uh, maybe just uh, <laughs> speak <Not> on <laughs> Great. So it's a a strong theme there. Mm -hmm. Do you mind speaking on your work in this area and Mm -hmm. why it's something that you're as passionate um, about? Yeah, sure. So, no, you covered it. And I think it's important to me um, because I I am from that community. So the reason I think women's empowerment um, is really important is because we we touch every facet of life we exist in every single space and for me these different projects or these different things you've outlined speak to that in different ways so with red carpet green dress um if you know kind of a bit more like about the composition of the fashion industry i mean more often than not like the majority of garment workers are women um you can look at it country by country um in bangladesh there's um kind of uh, the garment industry employs 4 million um, people and of those 4 million, 85% of them are women. More often than not, our garment workers or the people who make our clothing are women of colour. So there is a direct kind of connection, I feel, there. And, and we see that more often than not, the women in these positions, um, more often than not, not across the board, but I'm just saying on average, they do tend to be um, exploited, whether it's whether whether it's what they're being paid or whether it's what is being expected of them in terms of the production. I remember speaking to a friend who worked with a fast fashion brand um, and she said she'd visited one of the factories, I think it was in Ethiopia, and they had a timer system. So they would have a certain amount of time to make an entire jacket and the, the person that could make it quickest would get like a tiny bonus or something. And it was insane. Like it was a kind of a conveyor belt kind of system. Like how quickly can you get the zip on? How quickly can you do the button? So there's an exploitation happening that affects a kind of women, that affects women of color, that affects. And I can see that that's shifting now because it's been um, all made in India, made in Bangladesh. 
Now we're seeing made in Rwanda. Now we're seeing made in Ethiopia. And I'm from the continent. Um, my parents are from the continent of Africa. I identify as a British-born Ghanaian. I can see this shift. And so my passion when it comes to red carpet, green dress and women is A, making sure that we aren't replicating broken systems. So we're not taking these broken systems and, and kind of implementing them in other parts of the world. Um, and so advocating for that means shining a light on the role of women in these spaces and making sure that they have access to organizations that provide them with knowledge about their human rights, give them legal support. They can advocate for themselves, things like that. They can have maternity, you know, just maternity. When COVID hit, 98%, 96 to 98% of um, brands just didn't pay. They just didn't pay, which is why we had the pay up campaign. And we worked with organizations that were on the ground in parts of the world where those female workers who were pregnant were sleeping outside those factories. Wow. So there's that side of it, which is just sickening. Then there's the other side where, um, as kind of a woman in a leadership position, I'm not in a ma I don't have a lot of company when I go into spaces. Like more often than not, I'm probably the only woman of color in that leadership position, or there's one other. So women empowerment for me is also trying to build networks of women in these positions so we don't feel so siloed and where we can trade tips and skills about how we can advocate for ourselves amplify our fellow workers and call out the stuff that's kind of nonsensical um cop 26 like the representation of women in those debates about climate change was minimal yet we know that when it comes to how climate is going to affect the planet on average it's going to affect women more severely because a lot in lots of parts of the world, women don't have are not given access to their finances in the family. They're expected to be primary caregivers. So, um, so when when you look at things like um, meal preparation in spaces where there's drought, when you look at job loss in spaces where they don't have access to to working anyway, this affects women in a different way. So, it's all about a kind of education. It's about creating opportunities for women in different spaces to have roots to different existences, existences that they crave, existences that they desire, but they don't know how to get there. Um, and with the tribe, I started the tribe because one of the Oscars years, we delivered two gowns and we started just delivering one gown, but me being me was like, let's do two, you know, more. So I pushed myself to a point of kind of breaking point, to be honest, it wasn't healthy. And I remember coming back from that year and just feeling so tired. And then I spe spoke to a friend who said, oh, that's amazing that you did that. So, you know, what's next? And I just remember in that moment feeling so deflated because, oh, wow, I've just delivered this thing. I've not had any time to celebrate it and I'm already being asked what's next. So the tribe was really created for women who are doing their best and working the hardest they can, but always feel like they're supposed to be this next thing just to say, just celebrate who you are, celebrate the idea that you are enough as you are. And even if you didn't do any of these other things on the list that you have, you would still be enough. So sorry, I hope that kind of answers it, but that's what all of this work means to me personally. It answers it perfectly. Thank you. I want to touch on something you mentioned there as well. It's similar, but slightly different. Um, when you speak about in your position now, when you attend these conferences or industry specific things, oftentimes you're mm -hmm. owned, owned, one of the only women of colour there mm -hmm. or maybe one one other or something like that yeah. when I was working in fashion myself I found it to be a very it, it wasn't very diverse at all mm -hmm. I felt I was pretty like I used to work for a fashion retailer I think 
I think it was two black people and the office was massive. There was a load of people. There wasn't a lot of people. It wasn't a lot of black people. It wasn't very diverse. And even if we take it back, when we, I think you mentioned earlier on, you spoke about when you grew up with parents that are growing up in a continent from Africa, and then there's a narrowly set, defined set of career paths they want. Is it law, medicine, what is it, engineering, you know, accounting, <laughs> accounting those kind accounting, of, those kind of <laughs> respected professions. Do you feel like that has a part to play into the lack of diversity? And Good also, I'm following on from that. So when I first entered into the fashion industry as well, yeah, I guess because of where I grew up, so I grew up in East London and I've mm-hmm. always associated with people from my background until I went to university where yeah. it was just a totally different ball game where people were from very different backgrounds. I mean, generally speaking, a lot of people were a lot, you know, more middle class type backgrounds, very different mm-hmm. to the type of people I was used to interacting with. And at first, mm-hmm. um, when I first entered the industry, I found it so difficult. Like I literally couldn't <laughs> socialize I didn't know how to uh, and it just took a, a while for me to be able to get more comfortable in those spaces is that something have you ever had any issues on your side maybe I don't know feeling like you don't fit in or trying to fit in or just trying to integrate because of the lack of diversity yeah I mean what you just said I mean who I don't think anyone listening to this won't especially if you're black won't recognize and understand that feeling um because it is it is hard um and I think that's part of why when you go back to um kind of when I go back to Ghana the joy there's this kind of unspoken joy that you feel of not being the only one in the space and that what therefore makes you kind of what makes you um different is not that but it's just what you are as a person like you're different because you know your personality or you're this versus this is the determining difference so it's a hundred percent something I experienced and even because I you know from an educational point because I love that you talked about your experience in um when you were being um in university because that's still an experience and 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 I think Yes, it's difficult, um, but it's necessary. I think it's difficult and it's necessary. I think it's difficult because of the reasons that are self-explanatory, but it's necessary because we need to we need to be in these spaces. We need because this was about access to higher level education. This isn't about these people. This is about my opportunity to learn this and move along my life in this direction. So I must be in this space. I think the issue comes with admissions I think it comes with curriculum and it comes with all these other things where why aren't we talking about or why aren't we embedding these different stories into what people experience at university because when I remember when I was uh, doing some work with LCF and the London College of Fashion and I've worked with different colleges but lots of the of the few kind of black students would speak to me and say oh when you came in I just felt so happy to see you you know, it was so nice to see you. And I was giving examples of things that they could relate to. I was trying to make sure that when I was talking about like luxury designers or whatever it was, I was citing designers. If I was talking about couture, I was talking about Diola Sego as well. I wasn't just talking about, you know, um, um, Yves Saint Laurent or Chanel, but I was giving examples of um, luxury um, designers from the continent so that so that they were in the conversation. They were present. So I think there are so many factors at play. There's there's representation in these spaces for students there's representation of where students come from in curriculum 
there's a need for um, more representation in teaching so people can because you know it's interesting I read this thing where it said um it was a sad statistic but it talked about how likely women of color were to die in childbirth if they were being treated by um a, a doctor of color or not and it's based on how they perceive you and it's based on all of these different things and I read that in education black children are deemed perceived to be older than they are more aggressive than they are so sometimes teachers are bringing stuff there's bringing this con un unconscious and very conscious bias to how they interact with students from different backgrounds and who look differently which is why I think representation in teaching is important so when you spoke just then I felt that so much I mean I went to university in East London and I love East London I lived in East London um, and where I went to university it was quite diverse it was actually predominantly really an Asian you know I went to Queen Mary in Westfield which is near my lens so I had my friends were kind of I was had friends who were uh, African African diaspora um, I had friends from the Asian community Indians Bangladeshis it was amazing so I was quite lucky but Going up, growing up in Cambridge, I know people who studied in Cambridge and they did not have that. So they had to go find their Afro-Caribbean society and just find their people. Um, so I don't know if I've even answered your question. All I'm trying to do is say I have had those experiences. And the only way I think I've managed to maintain my survival is by reminding myself who I am. Um, and reminding myself where I come from. Uh, one of my recent projects is doing a family tree because I come from some amazing Ghanaians and I'm building a family tree because I want to know their stories, their names um, and who I, where I come from. So if I ever feel lost in spaces, I can remind myself that this space doesn't define who I am, you know, um, and I just have more confidence to be in that space as well. But it, it definitely isn't easy. For sure. That's great. Just reflecting on your journey so far, yes. what would you say to be maybe one of your highest highs and um, lowest lows <laughs> on your journey so far um highest high was winning red carpet green dress because i suddenly felt seen i've been knocking about in the uk fashion industry for a little not for long but for a little bit and i hadn't really felt kind of seen in any real way and then i won red carpet green dress and i was brought into this world of what felt like meaning in fashion um and now we're doing loads of different things but that was a high a low moment would be I think the low moment was just um 29 uh, 2020 like and and George Floyd and everything that happened then because you just it was just so overwhelming it was overwhelming for I think black people it was overwhelming working in the fashion industry because you're suddenly being kind of bombarded and sought after you know suddenly people realize wait we have no black people in our social media feeds <laughs> like what are we gonna do you know we know we don't have we don't have black people in our leadership teams if anyone goes to our corporate website and they look for who we are there's not a black face on there so what happened was all of a sudden everyone's bombarding and trying to reach out and grab grab black bodies grab black people in and it just felt so aggressive and it felt so performative and it felt so insulting because it was kind of, oh, you really want us to believe that you've only just seen us? Because how do you how do you engage with people that you realise you've never included 
realize you now need to include but no they've always existed you have to send emails you have to make phone calls and say oh i've just discovered the work you've done even though we're in the same industry for the past five six seven years so those conversations felt so inauthentic because you're not coming from the place of saying look we know you exist we've been ignoring you now we want you in the space because we like it was just horrible so that was a low it was a real low and i think we all felt it and yeah it was just a low it was just a really hard time i think that was probably like a collective low that was disgusting yeah. that it whole just... I, I, I still haven't even watched the video i didn't even want to watch it don't really want to see it i didn't i didn't watch the video either i kept seeing screenshots of it and i was like i just yeah. don't want to see this yeah yeah and i feel what you're saying as well about the sort of the some of the performative things these yeah. organizations were doing with the black squares and everything like that and my question was always okay great you're putting up your black square mm. what is your internal structure look like because we need tangible help or progress as well or something like that mm. what, what are you tangibly doing as opposed to just posting stuff on social media because that's easy and anyone can do that exactly that's good then thank you for that can you hear the just just how you just what the emotion in your voice was exactly how I felt and it's exactly how we all felt and it's just not good enough and that's what drives me I'm sure that's what drives you like this whole concept you've done with a thousand voices is amazing it's amazing and and I'm just I just wanted to say I'm proud of you for doing this because these voices and these stories mean a lot to us so yeah just well done sorry <laughs> what was your next question <laughs> what are some things that you wish you knew sooner on your journey <laughs> i wish i knew sooner that you're supposed to enjoy the journey um because for so long i was just kind of like this is the goal this is the goal and I wasn't enjoying the journey. I was just looking at the goal and saying to myself, when I get there, I'll enjoy myself. Um, and actually, that's a complete... I've cheated myself. I've cheated myself out of so much enjoyment because I kept putting pressure on myself to say, this bit's not meant to be fun or just focus on the, the work to the destination and, and not knowing that the goal always keeps moving you know, because, you know, you get there and it's not what you thought or it moves a bit and because you've changed. So it's not what you want it to be. So then you so you're constantly kind of going after this elusive goal that is basically always slightly out of your reach for so many reasons. So had I known that, then I would say, oh, I should enjoy this journey because this is the bit I know is happening. Um, so that's what I would say. <laughs> that's really good. And finally, just to wrap up. Uh, well, mm -hmm. before we move into quitfire questions, ah. <laughs> it's infamous quitfire questions. I'm not good at this. <laughs> what do you want your legacy to be? More vulnerability. I would like my legacy to be more vulnerability. I think up until this point, I've kind of put out, I've, I think I've put out too many of the, the successes and I don't talk too openly about the things I failed at or the things I'm insecure about. And I would just like my legacy to be a kind of a relatable journey, more of a relatable journey. And I think to have that, I need to work harder at being more vulnerable and not only presenting the stuff that's worked, but also, and the stuff I feel good about, but also being able to be honest and say, these are the things that have failed and these are like the flaws in my character 
and the things I'm working at. So yeah, that's what I would say. That's really good. With that, just to touch on that. So with the more vulnerability thing, I think that's always something that, that it's so tough to put yourself out there in such a public forum, especially if you're a bit more of a public figure as well. I mean, me, there's things about myself, I that's what it felt comfortable <laughs> putting it out there. But when we, you know, with, um, I guess, you know, with social media and things like that, and you're looking at Instagram, you see somebody and you, you feel like, wow, they're like, over there there are millions that's ahead of you so already and they're winning in life <laughs> winning all, yeah. every single day and it, it just look they look so far away they look mm-hmm. like seemingly they look they have nothing wrong with them everything's going well with them. yeah so i do really applaud when people do put themselves out there in such an authentic and available way i always applaud it because like that's a very brave mm-hmm. thing to do i i haven't done it and i'd feel very <laughs> uncomfortable putting myself out there like that yeah. so I, I definitely hear what you're saying i feel what you're saying that would um yeah, be a good one. It'd be a tough one. It's tough. You're right. But when people do it, you just, and it's not kind of like you have to tell the world your business. Cause I think that's my thing with social. It's kind of, I try with my social to kind of talk about my work and sustainability and my passion. And there might be some things like little personal things in there, but I just can't strike that balance of just sometimes it feels like sometimes people have to tell you everything about themselves to get, to get the audience or the engagement they have and I just fundamentally don't really agree with that. I don't think you owe the world your story in that level of exposure to yourself because then what do you have for you? You know, what do you have for yourself that isn't out there? So it's kind of this balance of vulnerability and sharing, but also feeling like you've kept things that for yourself that are just for you um, that aren't for social commentary. And I struggle with that. Like, I don't want to overshare um, and I feel that sometimes we're in a society where in order to maybe grow and to reach people, you have to keep oversharing. And so it's just like you said, that vulnerability balance with still keeping some things for yourself. So I have to work on that. <laughs> it's, de- it's definitely a balance. It's like, you know, that saying people say people do business, business people do business with people, not business with people. businesses. It's like people mm-hmm. just like people. And you don't have yeah. to just say put out there what you're eating for dinner every single day <laughs> but like I feel like putting yourself out there makes yourself a bit more relatable mm-hmm. especially when it seems that somebody is so many steps ahead of you it just mm-hmm. makes you seem more it seems makes people seem more relatable I mean generally speaking anyways and something I need to practice myself anyways. yeah well, you inspired me my next, my next vulnerable post I'll tag you <laughs> <laughs> great but this is because of you <laughs> great I'm looking forward to it exactly <laughs> all right great so um let's look let's move into some quick fire questions I okay i'm said, not good at these <laughs> you said you're not great with them i'm not we could give it okay. a try we can give it a try okay. if you we could pass it like i don't know let's say 20 seconds yeah um okay. so it's like whatever comes to your head first and <laughs> if nothing okay. comes then we can pass it along <laughs> we'll be here for a while okay go on <laughs> great all right first question what's your favorite movie Oh, God. Oh, Inception. I love Inception. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Second question. Favourite book? Things Fall Apart, Chinua Chebi. Okay. All right. Three. A song that you could never get bored of? Um, right now I'm listening to Bloody Samaritan by Ira Starr. Love that one. Great. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Jollof. Easy. Easy, <laughs> yeah. with plantain but obviously jollof i could survive yeah yeah that's my go-to food <laughs> yeah. all right how do you start your day oh 
um, trying to push out the negative thoughts and bring in the positive ones. Perfect. Three people that inspire you. Uh, my mum, Oprah Winfrey, and it changes all the time. Um, my mum, Oprah Winfrey, and I'd probably say Susie, Susie Amos Cameron, because she literally has a relentless capacity to see poss- like possibilities and situations, and I don't get it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, she's amazing. The, what's the best advice you've ever received? Sleep. <laughs> rest. Rest. So you can have, you can do, you can, don't rest. Rest is just the advice. Have some rest. Reset. Give yourself a chance to come back stronger. <laughs> Can't go wrong with rest. Can't uh, go wrong with rest. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause, what would you pick? Oh. Um, education. Um, I would say... Uh, really children's education um because that's so important if you get the foundation right they can be they can see possibilities for themselves perfect uh last two what's the kindest thing that somebody has ever done for you Mm. said um i like you for who you are not what you do oh that's great and the last one one thing that people don't know about you I love lucid dreaming I really enjoy lucid dreaming so that's quite interesting to me I write about that stuff as well but I've never shared that perfect all good all right so that's that thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) I was under pressure with a quick fire (laughs) it's really hard what's your favorite book by the way I've got loads um have you I've probably uh, I'd say um, Richard. I'd say Richard Branson's biography, "Losing My Virginity." Okay. That was the that yeah that book literally changed my thinking on life when I read it okay. in college. I'll read that one. To Kill a Mockingbird. <sighs> so good. So good. Um, so good. Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Oh, Toni Morrison! Yeah. I love the bluest eye. I haven't um, read the it. Bluest eye. I haven't read oh, it. Oh, the bluest eye is amazing. Hang on, I'm just writing this down. Wait, yeah. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is so good. So. Oh, good. I have to read that. Yeah. I've read the bluest eye and Beloved. I think I've Beloved. Got, I've got Beloved on my Kindle. I haven't read it yet though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've just like I bought it quite recently mm-hmm. actually, but I haven't read it yet. Nice. Oh, nice. I'm wanting to read it. And also, actually, I'll throw in the Broken Earth trilogy. I think it is by N.K. Jemison. It's a fantasy trilogy, but I love fantasy. I grew up on fantasy books. No, no, no. Oh, my gosh, wait. I need that because... Um, so I've started to read, or I literally just yesterday started to put together a little um, basket of books I wanted to buy. And I wanted to get... Um, it's Children of Blood and Bone oh, by... Um, um, I know the book. Tommy Adeyemi. I haven't read it, but I know... It's quite popular, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it yeah. is. It is. <laughs> It's kind of, um, and this, like, Tommy is just apparently just, this book is incredible. And you said it's like fantasy, but it's similar. It's um, it's kind of a West African-inspired fantasy novel, which is really great. And then, um, and so in that same vein, it was another one called The Oshun Diaries, Encounters with an African Goddess by um, another author. Because I, okay. I, I love what you're saying about fantasy and stuff. But I wanted to do more to support and read Black or African authors. Yeah. Because, you know, I was just thinking, why don't I have more of these on my shelf? So it's true. That's I love why, those. I just, yeah. 
that's why the Broken Earth trilogy, the, um, N.K. Jemison, she's a black woman. So I was looking for specifically fantasy books by black authors, and I came across that. So it's a trilogy. I bought the first book. Oh, I love a trilogy. And I, I finished everything. And I was like, this is so good. And if people that know me know, I don't like rereading things. I read it once and I put it away. Mm -hmm. That book, yeah. like even last night, I was so tempted that I may just read the whole trilogy again. <laughs> it's so oh good. My gosh. So oh tempted. My God. I was laying in bed in my Kindle open, like, oh, or sharing something new. <laughs> So I go read like Tony Morrison, Beloved, or just go back. I know I like it. So I go back and just read um, the Broken Earth trilogy. So good. Oh, amazing. I See, it. I love this. I love this. And then the last one I was going to say that you might like, it's called The Three Body Problem. The Three Body um, Problem. All the right, Three um. Body Problem. And it's by, um, I'm just going to try, I have a copy of it. Um, I haven't actually managed to, it's one of the books. So basically it's one of the, these highly recommended books. Um Give me one second. I know we're recording, but one second. Yeah, it's, it's all good. I can't believe it. Someone's absconded with my book. Well, anyway, it's called, it's by um this author. I think she's called Shin Lee. I don't know her, I've, I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember, but like Barack Obama's read mm. it. All of these people have read it. And they just said, it's like, it's such a, an intelligently written fantasy um, novel that someone said reading it, helps you realize how what our minds are capable of um and it inspires you to use your mind more because i think they say we use 10 percent or like three percent of our brain matter yeah yeah and they said reading this book yeah. makes you want to reach more into that other 97 percent and get closer to i just thought that's such a great quote like if someone said that yeah. about a book i wrote i'd be pretty i've written it down <laughs> anyway all right well, I've got this now <laughs> I've, I've written it down. I've got my book of <laughs> The Broken Earth Trilogy, Losing My Virginity, Song of Solomon, um, and I'll, I'll hear, I think there was one more, but yeah. I said um, To Kill a Mockingbird, but you, you read it. that before, I right? I read that one. I read that, I think we read that in school. We read that um, when we were doing our, like in secondary school, it was one of our English books that we studied, you know, and you had to write something about whatever, but it's yeah, we've done it in school. We've done it in school as well. I didn't really fall in love with it like that in school. Same. It was more after school. I just, <laughs> I don't even know how I got the book. I don't know if I bought it or someone gave it to me. I got the book somehow <laughs> after school. Um, I read it and I was like, wow, nice. this, is, this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> really, really good. It's amazing, isn't it? The way people can build these worlds and just take you into them. And I'm sure loads of people in lockdown, like, picked up a book because you might have done Netflix and stuff or, you know, done your streaming. But, but that's how some people coped by just disappearing into their books. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I think probably why I like fantasy so much. Probably it's because there's so this epic worlds. It's like yes. it's massive, and you get to think your mind goes places. And have you watched so June good. yet? Have you watched June? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it. What did you think yeah. of it? Oh, it's quite good. I thought it was yeah. good. Yeah, I thought it was good. I'd give it. It's not. <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> I'd give it maybe a seven out of ten. Personally. Wow. Okay. Got you. What about you? Um. So when I left the cinema, I was like, "This was amazing." I was I had anticipation when I was watching. I had a lot of anxiety when I was watching it because it's so unpredictable. And Hans Zimmer, who I I am just Hans Zimmer um did the musical score, right? And he did it for Inception. I've noticed a lot of the films I love, Hans Zimmer has done the music for them. Um and I just he he gets the scene and he delivers the music for the scene. So I knew I would love it because he was involved. And I remember leaving the cinema and thinking, Oh, that was so stressful, but that was amazing. The cinematography and everything. But then afterwards, when I went to read about it, I read about how much distress it caused to like the Bedouin community and to people um, from parts of the Middle East and parts of Northern Africa, because 
they felt that lots of elements of their culture were incorporated into the film, but they weren't represented in the actors. And then I kind of couldn't get that out of my head. So yeah, yeah. it was hard for me to then, I loved it, but then afterwards I thought, oh, that's really painful for them. So um, yeah, I did like it in the cinema and I, um, you know, I love Zendaya. I think she just, she's getting everything she deserves. You know, I think she's amazing. So yeah. yeah she, was only, she's, she was only like in the last like 15 minutes of the movie though. <laughs> that's 15 minutes in total and they've like spread it out throughout the movie but I think in the next one she has a bigger part um but yeah I felt a bit cheated like you know when there was that scream film where Jada Pinkett's killed at the beginning and you're like I went for Jada and you killed her straight at the beginning I don't know if you remember what, that wait, what film was that it was it was one of the scream movies and she was in it oh and the everyone, scream movies yeah okay Everyone went to remember. see it because Jada was in it and then like she died in the first five minutes. Oh, that, that's, that's such a big spoiler. I'm so <laughs> sorry. No. Guys, if you're listening <laughs> and you're going to watch that film, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it's put, like, the a old spoiler one. Alert or something. old one. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been so nice speaking to you, honestly. <laughs> oh, it's, it's been so, so great speaking with you as well. I like, really appreciate it. Yeah, really appreciate it. So many takeaways as well. And well, I've, I feel inspired by your journey and from what you've had to share as well. And uplifted Ditto. as well, which is important. Ditto. I feel inspired by you. Thank you so much. Just to round up, so where can people find you? If people want to follow you and keep up to yes. what you're doing. Yeah, so um, I am on all of the social talent channels under I am underscore Samata, which is spelled S-A-M-A-T-A. Um, so that's a good way. But I, you know, I'm on my Instagram, you can just email me through there. Like I, I do do kind of use socials and stuff, but um if you have something you want to talk to me about, want to reach out, feel free. You know, that's what I like to say. Cool. Perfect. All right. So thank you once again, Samata. Thank you. This was so nice. Great, thank you so much. That's a thousand voices and that's it. We're out. Bye. Okay, and that's a wrap. One voice down, 999 to go. Thank you for tuning in. It's very, very much appreciated. If you'd like to support us, then please do like and subscribe to this channel as well. And leave us a comment and let us know what you thought about this episode. Any key potential takeaways that you had, what you think about 1000 Voices in general. Any and all feedback is very, very much appreciated. Next week, we've got another very special guest on the podcast. I, Stephanie Boyce. I, Stephanie Boyce is the current president of the Law Society, which is an independent body that governs all solicitors across England and Wales. She is the 177th president of the Law Society, but one, she's the first black president in its entire history, and two, she's only the sixth ever female president in its entire history. She's worked extremely hard to get to where she's got to. It didn't happen by chance whatsoever. So no matter what your background is, I'm sure that we can all draw some inspiration from her journey. We're going to be dropping some previews for this episode on our social media channels. So follow us if you'd like to see those. That's at a thousand voices UK on every platform. And that's that for this week. So until next week, that was one thousand voices and we're out. <laughs>